Hello, fellow griever. This is the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast, and I am Melissa, your host. This week, you have found yourself with me for one of my shorter, solo, down-the-rabbit-hole episodes. Here, I take you with me on a journey of sorts, through thoughts in my own griefy mind. Some days, I may tackle topics as if I am in Alice's shoes, slaying the Jabberwocky, and on others, I may end up in my own pool of tears, or I may just go a bit sideways and paint the proverbial roses red, but I always promise an adventure. So let's dive down the rabbit hole and see just what sorts of madness we might discover together. I am glad you have joined me, because while I do know how lonely this grief is, I also believe we needn't be alone. Welcome. Hello, fellow grievers. Today you have reached Season 4, Episode 36 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast. And today, um, as I'm recording this, I haven't exactly decided on the end title for this episode, but I'm going to discuss the concept of who are we after we lose someone by suicide, especially um, after we lose a child by suicide. Who are we now? We often feel like we're living on a completely different planet. You know, almost like we're living on the other side of an of a see-through wall where the rest of the world is still going on as they were before and we can't quite assimilate or walk back into that life because there's this invisible wall between us. This is a concept that we talk about on a fairly regular basis in my support community. And I've heard it talked about in multiple ways. And I think that sometimes analogies are easy for us to understand. I know there's a member of my um, community that talked about herself in the very early um, months after she lost her daughter to suicide as an infant griever. And what she meant by this was that she was equating her life now after the loss of her child to being born again in a way that you have to learn to live and function and do things all over again. And I think that's a good way to look at it. I know I also have talked about feeling like we were suddenly thrust into another neighborhood, if you will. Um, One day I went down a rabbit hole of my own and remember talking about this journey from the moment that we lose our loved one being similar to if we found ourselves just all of a sudden we woke up and we were in a completely different home, a completely different neighborhood. And We didn't recognize our surroundings. We didn't quite know how to behave in them. And we went about our life temporarily 
thinking that we were going to get back to our real home. In other words, I know we often think in the early parts of grief, not really consciously, as much as subconsciously, there's a part of us that thinks we're going to get back to our normal life at some point or our normal self. And it's harder for us to realize that our life has been cracked open and changed on a level that that old life fell into the abyss and went away when we lost our loved one. And it's like sitting on the edge of devastation. And in the beginning, everybody's there with you and it's, they're um, helping you believe on some level that you are going to have your old life again. But as they all go away and go back into their lives, you really start to register the magnitude of how different you are at this point. You realize that you are no longer in the same life, that you are no longer going to get back to that place that you were before. And that's part of this process that I talk about often. And I talk about it because it's my lived experience and having spent so much time with other fellow grievers over the last several years, I see the commonality with so many of us in the first three years. And yes, I almost put an ish on that because I often do say that there's no exact timeline and we we are built to be creatures of timelines and chronology of year to year. And so for me, I have seen that that first year is survival. That's really what we're doing. We're getting through all the firsts. The first year is disorienting to say the least. We feel like it's not real often. And the idea that this could be permanent is so very far away. And it is a year full of being shrouded in a cloud um, of grief, if you will. Our brain is protecting us from more than we can handle in that first year. And sometimes we have moments of lucidity where we feel like maybe we are not still in that grief cloud. But looking back later, we most of the time realize that we were. We definitely were. Um, There's a lot of memories from that first year that still elude me because I was so very protected um, by my own brain that I don't have a lot of the memories that I feel like I should have of that first year, especially without a lot of prompting or photographs or something like that, because we really are just inside a cocoon of our own mind's protection. And then after that first, all the firsts that come that first year, after we pass the first date of their death, we enter into that second year and It almost feels like, I don't usually talk about it this way, but that second year is kind of divided into two parts from what I experienced and what I see most other people experience. And the first part is really heavy. A lot of grievers or in grief circles, you'll hear people talk about the second year is worse and to prepare for the second year being worse. And I like to stay away from the terminology of worse Because to me, there's nothing worse than what we experienced the moment we lost, for me, my child or our loved one. And so is the second year different 
Absolutely. The reason I think it often gets labeled as worse is because it's more raw. I often equate it to exposed nerve endings. The fog starts to lift, which would be like a buffer between the pain being as harsh as it is. Remember, I talked about how we're surviving that first year and our body and brain mostly is protecting us from taking in more than we're able to handle. And because it's doing that, when that fog lifts or that bandage lifts, it's like having exposed nerve endings almost. The, the, it's heavy, it's raw, it's large. It's f- the year that I call hope actually starts out feeling very hopeless often. But there's something that happens in that year almost without exception. At some point in that year, the second half, if you will, and again, not an exact timeline, but somewhere around that second half, you're going to find that hope shows up, that you have the hopelessness turn to small moments or flickers, which is really what hope is. It's just a flicker that something can be better, a glimmer of joy, if you will, something that starts to bridge us back to small things, small pieces of joy, little bits of laughter. And from that hope, we grow. We grow into the idea of believing, at least trying to believe that there's something out there in this life that could bring us joy again. And we start to, you know, the permanence, the acceptance really starts to sink in that year and realizing that this is forever. And so we have to start to make adjustments so that we can live in this life. And then we walk into year three. And most people by that point have 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 gone through some therapies and things like that and are working on tools to help them live better. They're starting to, um, their acceptance is growing. And I call that the year of healing not because I believe our grief is healed, so to speak. I know some people shy away from that word, but I'm not talking about healing our, from our loss. I'm talking about that's when we start to heal our trauma. That's when we can start to really apply these grief tools that we've been picking up and learning in the different therapies and places that we go to deal with our grief and to live with our grief. And that's when all of the what now starts to show up. Um, Because if you do dig into healing your trauma, and learning to live alongside your grief, what now does show up, meaning what do I do from here on out? And it's also usually when the idea of wanting to remember our loved one, in other words, legacy tends to show up at that point as well. And then after that year, you know, when we enter into year four, and beyond. That's when we're really learning to live our life after suicide loss. I say it's the keep swimming and keep practicing phase, because at that point, we have done a lot of work, and we do feel like we have our feet underneath us a little bit more. We feel like, you know, we have, we're starting to have a handle on living with this grief and this pain. And it is starting to look like we can live a different form of a life that has some meaning again. And I know one of the things that I want to talk about as I try to, you know, finish this up here in the next five or 10 minutes 
is along with this concept of who am I now, and then thinking about the first three years, I want to talk a little bit for just a minute about how we know the difference between sad and depressed. And I'm talking about for ourself as a griever. Uh, I'm not talking about anything to do with things that our loved one might have been dealing with. I'm talking about us. How do we know if we're just sad or grieving or if we're actually depressed? And, you know, I remember thinking, especially in the second year when somebody questioned if I was depressed. And I remember saying, of course I am. How could I not be depressed? So as soon as I say that word depressed, a lot of people assume that means that has to be fixed. And what I will tell you is that, you know, we can't let depression go unmanaged or unhelped, if you will. We have to, depression does because we know what the outcome can be if we don't deal with our depression. But how do we know the difference, right? So it's really, for me, the easiest way to break it down is because I do feel like, especially after losing your child, how can somebody expect that you won't at some point go into a depression, or you could possibly go into a depression. But I think it's looking at the difference between, are you grieving? Or do you have complicated grief that's unresolved? And so the answer to that doesn't come from me. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I know a lot of practical things, but I'm not going to, I'm going to stop at, you know, what might be perceived as professional advice. So my, my recommendation at that point is if you aren't sure, if you're just dealing with normal sadness and grief and possibly some temporary depression that of course goes along with that versus actual unresolved complicated grief, seeking out a therapist to help you with that or your family doctor, sometimes a good starting place is a place to go. And the thing that made me think about this was I saw something out there on the internet, you know, on the World Wide webs y'all. And it was called confessions of a depressed comic And it was just a little social media post with, you know, an article, a short thing written beneath it. But it was a young man who was is a comic and he was talking about his life. And especially as a comic, comics often use sadness or satire from their own life as comedy. And he was talking about the difference between being depressed versus sad, which is kind of what we're just talking about. But this, this reading this post was what sparked this rabbit hole. So I thought I had to give it at least a few moments. And he talked about sadness as something that happens because life sucks in the moment or because a bad thing has happened. And then he talks about depression for him being more of a feeling of sadness, or badness, even when life is good. In other words, at a point when you realize there's no reason that you should be feeling the way you're feeling, because your life is good on the outside to look at it, you may have a job that's good, you may have a family that's good, you have a roof over your head, all those things. And yet you feel this hopelessness, this depression, anyway, 
that's how he coined the difference because he has lived with depression for a very long time. And people often mistake it for, I don't know why you seem so sad right now. And he's had to differentiate those two by talking about it that way. Because he said it's absolutely different to be sad for a reason versus feeling this overwhelming sadness when there's, in his mind, no reason. So does it really fit for us in grief? It's a stretch. I get it. Because for us, if we're depressed, if we become clinically depressed as a part of, remember I said unresolved or complicated grief, to say there's no reason, that's not really fair, right? Because there is a reason. But at some point, we do have to start to be able to separate out a permanent loss that is is real and know that we have to learn to assimilate and live with it and still be happy. But when we can't do that, that may be when we realize that we may be looking at more of a depression versus just a, a, a grief. So like I said, I don't have any set answer for being able to you know, clinically tell you the exact difference between grief and depression and when we have to do something or act on the fact that we might need additional help or support and what we can hope for or look for, because what the fuck is normal now at this point, right? That's part of this process. And that's part of why I always tell people that they have to you know, do the things to be learning to live alongside this grief, because it doesn't come naturally. It's not something that time fixes. Time just passes, you guys. Time itself can't fix anything. As a matter of fact, if we ignore our grief and our pain, it will still be there, it will still resurface. So we do have to, you know, do the hard work to get to a place. And unfortunately, that's kind of, you know, my end piece for today is we just have to keep swimming, friends. We have to find our people or our community of grievers. We have to build that toolbox. And by toolbox, I mean tools, some that you'll use daily, some that you'll use weekly, some you may only use yearly, like at the time of the the anniversary of your loved one's death or things like that. And we have to practice using them regularly. One, because sometimes we take on a tool or start to use something and it doesn't fit. It doesn't really work for us. And maybe we took it on for a good reason because it's really helped somebody that we know. And so we feel like it should be working. But if it's not, it's okay to pass that tool on to somebody else or to just say, this one doesn't work for me and lay it down and don't put it back in your toolbox. Find the tools that work. And when the ones that that work, practice using them, you'll have to get better at it, right? And we have to seek therapy when we need it. And we need to build legacy so we can remember our loved ones. And that's kind of where I'm going to end today. This isn't something that needs to be you know, gone over and over again. But it was something that I felt like deserved some time to talk about because we do oftentimes think 
that we're going to get back to that place of air quotes normalcy or back home again to the place that looks and feels familiar. And I will tell you, being just over seven years in now, that now where I'm at, I am starting to pull back or bridge over to some of the old parts of myself that quite honestly, I thought were gone, that were just gone forever. And parts of me are gone forever. Parts of me went with Alex. Parts of me changed permanently because of the reality of living with a child who is on the other side, while still being a mother on this side. But now I'm starting to see that there are parts of my old life that or my old self that I can bridge back over and integrate into the new version of me. And that's an interesting piece and an interesting place to be. But that's probably a story for another day. I just wanted to talk today about especially these first three years, and then that kind of year beyond that of where where we are and what that looks like. And try to give you a little bit of hope that even though I know it's hard, beyond hard. Hard is not even the right word. There aren't right words, as you guys know. But to try to give you that hope that this life is still very much worth the effort that it takes to get back to a place where joy shows up again, and life has meaning again. And you can actually feel appreciation for the time that you had with your loved one and the life that they lived while they were here. And I promise you, if you're not at that place yet, that it is possible and that you can get there. So for today, I'm going to end by telling you that, as always, I hold each of you and your loved ones in my thoughts. So until next time, fellow griever, talk soon. So we'll conclude here for today. But I just wanted to say a few things before you go. If you're new to the podcast and have not listened to the very first episode called Intro Episode Start Here, all the way back at the beginning of Season 1, I would encourage you to do so so that you know what to expect from the leftover pieces. Because I do have several different styles of episodes that I record and we do release weekly, almost all of the time. So I hope that you will come back often to join us in this community of suicide loss survivors. If you have not already, also, I would encourage you to check out theleftoverpieces.com where you can find and have access to all of the things that I currently offer. Some of those things are online Zoom support groups, links to my books, educational opportunities that I'm adding all the time, as well as different downloadables, and resources for all suicide loss survivors. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, or you'd just like to connect with me for any other reason, you can do it through the website as well. So until next time, I just want to remind you that I know how lonely this grief is, but you don't have to be alone. Talk soon.